remember one time they had a four count and meet doing track. I ran so fast that when they turned the time and they said it boom couldn't run fast without it. They had the time clock and everything there and that's what it says but they said I couldn't run that fast so they had me turn around and run again uh, like a week later. I still set a world record. <laughs> so then they said well we're going to have to give it to him because he turned around and did it again. Hello and welcome to A Pixie from Kilmarnock, a program about the people, places, and history of the Northern Neck of Virginia. I'm your host, Pixie E. Curry. A reoccurring reference throughout my interviews has been the importance of sports on the Northern Neck. After working hard all day in the fields, on the boats, in the fish, crab, and oyster houses, or the homes and businesses of white people, the black communities turn to sports for relaxation and competitions amongst themselves. Sports help to transcend the hardship of hard labor. The tools and concept of sports knew no boundaries. Hit, jump, catch, win, lose. No discrimination here. Hard-earned pennies were gladly spent for tennis balls as substitute for baseballs. Rocks were covered with rags. Sticks used for bats. Anything that could be used as the plate and bases. Old work gloves were stuffed with rags. Rims or work baskets were nailed to trees or poles in backyards for neighborhood basketball games. If there was an ounce of energy left from a hard day's work, it was left on the playing fields. Organized sports in the school system were an outlet for a talented athlete. Women's softball teams traveled through segregated southern towns a potentially dangerous situation just to exhibit their athletic prowesses. May Days became a highly anticipated event because of the men's baseball games. Basketball was getting to be popular once newly built black schools included gyms. Education and sports became great friends in black homes. One home had 19 children. You have met one of those 19 children, Carol Curry, a member of the last graduating class of Julius Rosenwald in 1958. This interview, conducted in April 2021, is with his younger brother, Morgan, a member of the first graduating class of 1959 in the newly built Central High School. Morgan Curry was not only an outstanding academic student, but he excelled in every sport he competed in. Baseball, track, 
and basketball. He ran the 100 dash in 8.0. In 1963, Bob Hayes broke the 100-yard dash record with a time of 9.1, but that is a recorded time. Mr. Curry tells the story of growing up in a large family of intellects, athletes, and hard workers. My name is Morgan Elmer Curry Sr. I attended Annecy Teens uh, Grade School and Julius Rosenwald High School. I was born February 27, 1940. Where? In Virginia. Did you ever attend Central High School? Yeah, well, see, after the, we completed the 11th grade, then Central High School was the, was the world school. We were ready to go to Central then. In fact, I was in the first graduating class at Central in 1959. When you left Julian Rosenwald, your next year, which would have been the 12th grade, they had closed all the Julian Rosenwald schools? Julian Rosenwald didn't close until probably the college I mean, the high school uh, part. Because uh, they had elementary there, too, at Julius uh, Rosenwald. And Julia Rosenwald, did they have from, like, the first grade to... No, not the first grade. Not the first grade. No, no. In other words, Julius Rosenwald, let me say, Julius Rosenwald closed in the fall of 1958. And in fact, we didn't have no 12th grade there in, um, in the fall because we started school in the fall of 1958 and then went to uh, Central. We started at Central. So was that the first time they had 12th grade classes because everybody was graduating in the 11th grade? That's right. That's right. Central was the first year when we had the 12th grade. That's right. So everybody went an extra year of, of, of school. No, they didn't have to. The one that finished eleventh grade, they graduated eleventh grade. No, they didn't have to. They didn't have to go up there. No, what I meant was, you know, those who were maybe like, yeah. you know, went from the tenth grade to the eleventh grade, who right. would normally would have graduated at the eleventh grade, they had an extra year that was That's tacked right. onto their education. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uncle Morgan. You are my father's brother, and you are a family of watermen. Right. What was your first job when you when you was a, a young person? Oh, uh, okay. Well, yeah, we we all started really working at home, like about five, six years old. Daddy built crab pots, you know, and so we had a, a, a job like lacing up the crab pot, cutting the parts of the wire that makes the crab pot. So we actually started working from the time we were old enough to rationalize what we were doing. And then um, when I got to be eight years old, then I started working on side dishes for uh, neighbors, white neighbors in the in the uh, area, doing yard work, that type of thing, cutting grass and rigging leaves, working flower beds, that type of thing. Yeah. You grew up in a segregated society. I know that it's hard to think about it when this is what you know. But when you were a kid and you just going along happily, luckily, 
whatever. Did you ever know that it was a segregated society that you were living in? And, and as a young person, can you remember what was the first time that you became aware that there was a difference between the black people and the white people? Oh, yeah. Uh, see, by going up on the water, a lot of our friends were white boys because their fathers worked on the water, daddy worked on the water. We knew that it was it was a difference, especially when we got to be like 12, 13 years old. That's when the difference really started to show up because during that time, you know, uh, the boys and girls things with were friends, and then uh, they started getting to the age where they would... Um, you know, have little movie dates and that that type of thing. And so um, the white people, the older ones, tell some of their kids that uh, they were going to have to stop associating with us because of the little white girls that came along. They didn't want us to be you know, sort of associated with them. But, I mean, still, we all still stole out and went on joy rides and stuff like that. And I was never really went into a show together because um, we had to go upstairs in the movies. They went downstairs in the movies and we didn't have no car or nothing. So those boys would we'd walk up the road, they'd pick us up and we'd ride around and race because they race tall, being tall and they racing each other and that, that type of thing. But we always knew that uh, it was a difference. I was verbal. I mean, I, I always did speak out. You know, I was always stand up. I used to uh, tell my daddy them all the time. My, my father was very uh, smart doing things, industrial, and he knew how to do most anything. And a lot of them would come to him for advice on how to make this or how to fix that. And sometimes like the older blacks, you know, they were sort of had a little bit of fight in them. They wouldn't really say a lot and really tell you the way it was. But we were able to sort of figure out a lot of things on our own because we were a family of readers. We, we read everything, every kind of book. And we did it at an early age. When I was like four, three and four years old, I could read just as well as that person could at 10 and 12 because when I used to work for people in their home and stuff on weekends, uh, a lot of the neighbors would come over there just to hear me read, be four-five people. And they would save all the monthly periodicals that they didn't want, uh, had finished reading, newspapers, and they saved them for me so I could read to them because they just couldn't believe how well I, I could read. You know, you, you could tell them that they felt like that. I wasn't supposed to be able to read like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You went to Energy Jeans. Right. And you stayed at Energy Jeans until you were in what grade? Through seventh. Energy Jeans went through seventh grade. During those times when you went to school, who were your favorite teachers and why? <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you, um, Ms. Uh, Alma Benz, Nathan Taylor, Ms. Dickerson. I would say in the grade school and Ms. Cockle, they were my... Uh, favorite teachers then. Why? Why were well, they important? It, like, I, like I just mentioned a, a little while ago, I, I could read so well that uh, I, I actually could read almost all the books, all the books in the classroom because I already, I already read them. Because um, my sister, uh, Josephine, she would hold classes every night at home, even before we start the school. So by the time I start the school... <laughs> I used to really amaze the teachers how I could really go through my homework and uh, I mean my schoolwork and uh, never miss a beat because I most of the time I had already had it and and and, and was, was well versed uh, uh, on all the subjects that we really had in the school and so in fact um, 
I was so so well uh, versed that uh, they actually went a uh, right on up, right on up to the third or fourth grade, but they wouldn't let them do it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so, but it all comes from uh, the way that Josephine, you know, had sort of prepared us uh, when we started school. So we really were a long, long ways ahead of most of all the kids. That seemed to be a thread because that was Unthumber said the same thing about Daddy that yeah, uh, uh-huh. him and uh, Aunt Josephine would have classes yeah. at home. Yeah. Uh, when I was in uh, Antigene, we used to every year in February, they used to have these uh, oratorical uh, contests about black history. And um, believe it or not, I won every one of them. I, when I said every one of them, that includes... All of them were recruited along with the high school, too. And I shot all the, the upper classes down just a little bit <laughs> because it, it, it all comes from me. You know, I used to read everything. I knew a lot about what had transpired in our race years ago that uh, things people hadn't even heard of, but I did it, you know, research. One of the things that I know about you is that you was also very athletic. In fact, all yeah. of y'all were athletic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I was pretty good athletic. I sure was. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, yeah. I remember you and Daddy oh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. playing with yeah. the boys. Didn't give them, didn't give them any kind of quarter. Y'all played hard. <laughs> we started off at baseball because, in, in fact, uh, we didn't have the, the regular stuff, but we'd go in the woods and find a tree that we could make a bat out of. A lot of times we would take like a rock or something and wrap rags or a lot of rags around it, round it up, and that was our ball until we were able to really buy a real ball or somebody would give us the ball. And, and uh, really and truly, and, uh, we played in these cornfields to make no different where it was, but it really uh, became an advantage for us to do it because by the time we would get on a real baseball field, everything was easy to us because we had played in such rough fields and things and get in a field that didn't have a whole lot of rough spots in it, you know, Oh, we just went right through there just like nothing, you know. So that that put us way above most of the boys that's playing. And due to our work ethic, we were always in top shape because we already had work to do, you know. Couldn't come home and lay around like some of the other guys did. So it really, really played to uh, our advantage when it comes down to competing against most other athletes. I remember I remember one time uh, they had a four-county meet. Doing track, uh, I ran so fast that uh, when they turned the time and they said that human uh, being couldn't run as fast as I did. <laughs> so, but anyway, they had the clock, uh, the time clock, and everything there, and that's what it says. But they said I couldn't run that fast, so they had me turn around and run again, uh, like a week later, and I still, I still set a world record. <laughs> so then they said. Well, we're going to have to give it to him because he turned around and did it again. So, the, yeah, I was, I was really good at, at baseball and, and basketball. I really was. Because uh, we didn't have basketball until uh, we went to Central. Because we didn't have facilities. We didn't have no gym or nothing until we got up Central. And we played, you know, pretty nice. We had a, a rim outside on the ground and stuff like that. We uh, played like that. Uh, uh, rag football. You put the 
flag in, in your pocket, and you had to run and try to pull it out of somebody's pocket or stuff like that. But, yeah, we were great athletes. The Pittsburgh Pirates were looking at me, and I didn't turn pro. Were you on the basketball and baseball team when you was at Central? Oh, yeah. When we were at Central, yeah, I was the captain of the uh, basketball team at Central. Is it, uh, you know, by the first year I ever played basketball, in fact, I made all district as a rookie. It was, I was very quick. I was like the top scorer in rebound and, and all that in my first year. I was a quick learner and, you know, worked hard at, at what I did. And In fact, one game, um, I scored 28 points and a half. Coach wouldn't let me play the more that day because he didn't want to run the score. And so I was pretty good. Didn't you also play on the baseball team that won the championship? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we, won the, we won the state championship in 1958. And then, uh, in fact, my five years in high school, we never lost a game in conference play. We only lost one game my entire my entire uh, baseball career in high school. We only lost one game five years. That wasn't in conference play, but uh, that's the only thing we lost, one game. We were completely segregated. We had a chance to go to the national, but we had the money. So we couldn't go. In fact, we, we actually should have gone to the state every year, but didn't have money. That's the only reason why we didn't. And so the two years we, we did go, um, I don't know who put the money up, but I know some donor put the money up. And I, I can't swear to it, but I think it was a white donor that put up the money for us to go. But did nobody put it up for the, for the go to, to the national, but for the state, I think it was given to us. In 58 and 59, just on Easter Monday, we beat the Sunday Pro team. One year we beat them uh, 42, and the second uh, Easter Monday we played them, we beat them 5-1. We had good ball players. No question about it, we had good ball players. I mean, you really had to be good to make that team. Daniel Connors, he was, he was the coach. When he taught Miles. Who motivated you as being an athlete? I know that you desire to be the best. The fact that you became captain, how did that all happen? Well, I became captain of the basketball team because uh, I had the best ability and showed the most potential. I uh, used to watch uh, the Hard Grove Trotters, and uh, I used to try to imitate them <laughs> to tell who had a gym. And so, you know, and then when I got to play, I was so quick. The average person couldn't even stay with me, you know, couldn't keep up with me. Started to blend in with uh, my characteristic traits. So I'm pretty sure that that's why uh, the coach picked me as to be the captain. One of the things that why I want to talk to you because 1969 Brookvale State Champ just received the recognitions, right? Rings, the recognitions for not only for the rings but also just being recognized in the community. Right. And yeah. and one of the things that came up was that that was also the same year that they closed Brookvale. It made me think yeah. of Central. They just closed the black schools, even though they yeah. have excellent teachers and they had students that were achievers. Right. What do you think about that? When you said what I think about that, can you be more specific? Well, seeing black schools being the one, especially after integration, because that's when it all happened. Freedom of choice, right. integration. And it wasn't like freedom of choice, white kids 
come to the black schools. It was whether the black kids wanted to go to the white schools. It right. wasn't vice, vice versa. And it was the black schools that I feel suffered the most from integration. And one of the things happening was the schools being closed down, the black schools. How did you uh, feel about really it? And truly, uh, to be honest with you, I really was upset when he was so close the black schools down because I went to... Uh, I guess two or three PTA meetings. To my surprise, I was the only person that got up and spoke against it, and 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 that was one of the reasons, one of the real reasons I was doing because I thought that that's what we gonna be really be talking about. But nobody else would stand up and said nothing against it. And when I turned around, during the time when the first uh, I was an anti gene when they were gonna close the anti gene just put it closed down, and I told them, I said, I really think that. Um, uh, I really didn't go for them closing it down. I graduated, and I was coming about some great people I know came over and TV. But I was the only black to stand up and say it. Everybody act like they were sort of uh, um, reluctant to say anything. But what I what I went on to tell you is that when they had black schools and white schools, I feel like that black people really they were facing the challenge that they maybe had to win. I think they put out well and they really achieved a lot. They had to leave Northumberland and Lancaster County to do it, but they did, and a lot of them made a name for themselves out in the world just by coming from all black schools. So, I mean, it really tells you what we, or I said they, but I still would include we in the two that really can do what we said I can do it and 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 go go ahead and do it. Really and truly, the only thing that I see that uh, we really gained, we got better material to work with because the years ago, a lot of black schools got hand me down some things that the white people were finished with. But still, as far as what they knew, black people still already knew how to do a lot of things. I agree with you. We lost some things when we became integrated. Right. We had it all along. We knew we had the know-how. Definitely had the know-how. I mean, all you got to do is stop and think where where we came from. A lot of black people didn't, didn't know how to read because they, the slave owner wouldn't let them. They couldn't let them know they didn't know how to read. But still, look at what they accomplished. So many things that they discovered and made without even having a book or something to get information on it. Just right from them. I mean, just gifted. Really got to know how. The, the biggest problem that we had and we have right today is is uh, unity. I, I just don't think the unity was strong enough and is strong enough today. It's not strong enough today between us. But if we come together, we can almost conquer the world. I heard that Granddaddy had developed a new type of crab pot right. that he was using, and somebody came and saw it and made that crab pot and claimed it as, as his own. Is that true? Yeah, but your granddaddy and my daddy, which is my daddy, he had a chance to have the franchise on every roll of Keystone Washold in the state of Virginia, but a white man talked him out of it. And the white man that talked him out of it was the man that got the franchise. <laughs> That's the truth. Your, your, your granddaddy could have been a wealthy man when he died, but... He would not listen to us. He listened to what they told him. In a way, it stands to reason, because Daddy was raised by a white man from the time he was four years old till he got to 20. He was raised by a white man. So he really felt like that he was a part of it. He just felt 
felt like they wouldn't tell him nothing wrong. But the thing I would did, they did. They did. Yeah, he, he was been wealthy. They was telling him how much taxes he was going to have to pay if he made the money. Kept telling him, I said, but you don't pay no taxes now because you ain't got nothing to pay no taxes on. You ain't got no money to pay no taxes on. Yeah, he, he would have been a wealthy man if he had taken that, that off. You are listening to an interview with Morgan Curry, champion athlete and student during the segregated Northern Nick era. This interview focused on opportunities and potentials not realized for mountains of reasons. Lack of funds, isolation of the rural areas where talent was hidden, and being black. It also focuses on black schools and their place in the black communities. A.T. Wright, A.T. Johnson, Central High School. Schools that are no longer standing, just empty lots or maybe the yard for another school or building. Who raised Granddaddy? A man by the name of Heidi Ingram, I-N-G-R-A-M-N. He lived over there from four years old until he got 20. Daddy had a sister with a white woman, uh, the same man, I think. Instead of him, he couldn't keep the, he couldn't keep her, so he took daddy, and they sent her to Baltimore. She lived little, all her whole life in Baltimore, but she after she got to be grown, she'd come home every year. She came home to see daddy every year. I know, I know she came home to see him every year for at least twenty years. I know she came home that many. It's probably more than that, but I can remember her coming home once every year. What was her name? Her name, her name was Ida. Ida Curry? Yeah, she went by Curry, but her dad was a white man. The DuPonts, they used to live not far from yeah. y'all too, right? Yeah, the DuPonts used to live right down right over to us. There was a bunch of Currys that worked from DuPonts way back there years ago, but uh, when they were living, but they had a big explosion down there one time because uh, he used to, like, mix bullets and explosives and stuff like that, and they had an accident. And I think a whole bunch of them, some of us have like 75 or 80, got killed at one time. Down Down in the district? Yeah. Wow, I never heard of that. Yeah, they had a point across the road from the the mansions. Did you ever see the mansions they had down there? I think I know the house. When you go on that split road and it's brick, I think that's the house you're talking about. Yeah, and... um, Across the road from there, it was some land that go right on to the Biden Creek, a point they called Grave Rock Point. And that was the point where they buried all them curries in one grave. So they were like Granddaddy Curry's brothers and uh, cousins and uh, stuff? Uh, no, I don't think it was his brothers. They were, they were before him. Oh, okay. Before him. They probably like what before, probably before his grandfathers too, I guess. I think they were doing slavery. That oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Y'all were the first people to have a telephone and electric lights. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we were the first black people to get uh, electricity and bathroom. Yeah. In fact, Daddy was one of the first black people to own his own house. Daddy owned his house in 1924. How did he buy the land? Daddy bought the land from uh, a man by the name of 
Brown, I think they call it Brown Carter. I think that's where they bought that land from, Brown Carter. Uncle Morgan, as an athlete, what do you see as the young athlete today versus you coming up? What do you see that are the same, and what do you see that is different? Well, today, uh, the young, young black uh, athletes, they got uh, so much better chance today because of one thing, because of the educational system. They got these eight that represent these boys now. You no, know they're trying to make money. And so they're going to get as much as they can for these people. And, um, you know, so they can feather the feather their part. Years, way back to years ago, uh, some of the greatest, the greatest black athletes in the world, some of them didn't get to play pro ball. Some of them did. Different then were because no representation. And nobody else was going to be making no money but them. So, but now that the the people who represent them make the money, they really they really got a, got a chance now to to do it. That's giving them a good life. Those that didn't forget where they came from made life better for the parents and the people coming coming up behind them. And especially in the educational world, you take people like LeBron James and put all that money out for help any black kid that want to go to college. They can go in that area and grant them to the same thing. So, yeah, it really has really boosted the economy for blacks as far as wealth goes. What has not changed? Oh, well, the black athlete has to be twice as good almost as a white boy as to be accepted on the same level that the, except the white boy at. Because any way you look at it, the white man still controls the money. As far as the gifts that each one of them have, I still think the black man is still well hit as far as being the best. That part has changed. The point is acceptance has changed to a certain degree. Not 100%. But to a certain uh, degree, you know that it has changed because uh, I've seen a lot of black people through here that really could have played pro ball, but, you know, with no money behind it. What are some of the things that you would like to see change on the Northern Net? Uh, well, you know, they got this argument out now where uh, is that they trying to, like, a, if, a, if a man is good enough, you know, to go pro, uh, they don't. They try and they they really try to talk him out of not going. Have to go to school for a certain number of years before he can uh, really accept this accept the contract now. But I, I I don't really buy it. I don't think that uh, I don't think it's fair because I think it sort of takes it takes away um, part of his rights as a person. In other words, you take a a, a man who come out of a family that has no money, just mediocre money. And somebody offered twenty, thirty million dollars to come play. Said no, you can't do it because you got to go to school for two years. Then some schools like Notre Dame, and uh, you got to have a, almost a B plus average to get in. And uh, it's just a, it's just a, a, another way of saying, look, we steal the ball. You still got to come through us. I, I don't, I, I think that should be done away with. If he has to be uh, twenty-one to to sign that. Uh, I think his parents should be uh, allowed to sign for him to be able to uh, do that uh, transition from from uh, from just an amateur to a pro. That thing, as far as as, as that go, I, I sort of think it would be. But and um, and one thing I would like, uh, and you said the black athletes that are already there, I sort of think that they should form some type of organization where they could step in and sort of make that happen of what I just said. 
give this man his right and let him to go on and you know without have having to um, go by uh, what the league is saying. The thing that I really to see changed is what I would like to see changed everywhere, and that is that I really feel like that blacks and whites, Mexicans or, or Eskimos, if the if we just will be able to look at each other and accept people just as human beings, just as human beings, get in in a, in a way where that you just recognize each other every time you see them or every time you you, you get together without without thinking about any type of discrimination or stuff like that. If you go in a place and don't look for a, a, a black person, don't look for a bunch of black people to sit by or white people don't look for a bunch of white people to sit by. Just take a seat and sit down. Just remember, I mean, this is a person, I'm a person, we all people, and we all really stri- uh, striving for the, for the same thing. I'll tell you, I heard a quote at Joe's Memorial Service. Josephine's son, Randy, made the best quote I ever heard of anybody really come right out and say, here I am. He said that they were praising Joe. That's what they really were doing. So when he got up to speak, he said, I listened at all this that we are saying today. He said, but I want everybody sitting in here today. Kind of just look at yourself. Take a survey of yourself and see and look, see how we set all the whites to set together. All the blacks are sitting together. And that's what he was saying. In other words, do what you can do to make the change without it being a big thing. Just automatically just come in, sit down, hello, how you doing? Not necessarily you get in one corner and I get in my corner. Just sit down. But that's true. And that's what I, I, I always used to say. Just don't think of, of them as being above you or you being above them. Just here we are. You know, that I, I would like to see that change everywhere, everywhere, just like that. So as a, a mentor, I'm going to call you a mentor, and you had a chance to talk to the young people, what would be some some advice you would give them? The main advice I would, I would, give, I would give young people today is the part when I talk about unity. I'm telling you, if we take care of each other and with the help of the good Lord, can nobody stop us? No, in other words, if I if I look up to you, you look up to me, how can anybody stop you? You can't. You can't. You just can't do it. But that and don't let people talk you into where you accept their five or ten cents worth about this person ain't this one and this one ain't this one. Especially if you don't know nothing about the situation or what's going on. But the most the most important thing that I can see in my race of people is unity. They just do not have the unity. We don't applaud each other when, when we know that this person is sharp or this person has done this and that. Now go to them, congratulate them, so glad for you or your daughter or your son. Man, really, um, they won't do it. They just don't. Uh, they're worried about uh, how much you're going to get or how much you have already gotten, and they can't accept it. But uh, that's our biggest problem. I know it's our biggest problem. People, my Lord, I don't. I I just don't know how many thousands and thousands of dollars I give away in my life. If somebody comes to me, need a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, and I know they're down. And they're, I don't even think about asking for it back. Never think about asking for it back. That's the truth. We, we are so afraid to give a little bit of money to a person in need. It's just ridiculous. 
Yeah, and I can truly say that I'd give away a hundred dollars. Somebody would come down and give me three or four hundred dollars. Now forget I came one uh, Friday. A uh, lady called me and she said uh, I gotta go to Oklahoma. I said, oh, "Yeah, what's going on?" She said, "Well, my son ain't is sick, and I want to eat a big BF sandwich tomorrow." But I don't have the money. And said, "I I need three hundred dollars. Can you let me have it?" I said, "Yeah." I think I can let you have it. And she said, well, uh, she tell me what she do. And I said, no, look, you don't have to do nothing. I said, I'm going to let you have $300. If you get it, you can get it back to me. But don't worry about it. I came home and turned the basketball game on. Telephone rung about 20 or 30 minutes after I got home. And the lady said, well, said, uh, it's Betty Johnson. She said, are you, doing, are you busy right now? I said, no, I'm not really busy. She said, can you come down here? She said, something I don't want to show you. I said, sure. I used to drive for this woman. I went down there and she she said she said I sold my Coca Cola box yesterday and she said uh, I got to um, get rid of some of this money. She said because of um, sure I won't have to pay a government a lot. I don't want to get the government. And she said I'm gonna give you said um, you should have fifteen hundred dollars. She said that this part of the, the bequest of your bequest that I'm gonna leave you and I pass on. So I was thanking you, John, and I was saying that to say this. You get what you give, and see, I got five times as much as I gave that girl the $300. Never worry about getting the back of it. You give it in good faith, and God, God will, 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 he'll multiply it for you two or three times. So that's what I try to tell young people. Don't worry about doing something that, if you're doing it in good faith, now, if you're doing it not in good faith, you may not need it so much you love, but if you know that you feel like you're helping somebody, oh, you're going to get that back, double, triple, forward sometimes. No question about it. But they ain't going to get as much money as you got, but but, but if you get it. Thank you. That's the sure enough truth. You really do have to not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And if if you're doing something because you're looking for praise, then I think that's what it says in the Bible. You already been rewarded if you're that's right. Exactly. No, no, exactly. You check, um, when I got last time with cancer, I mean, man, I was, they didn't give me no chance to live. I mean, no chance at whatsoever. Chief surgeon told me, said, I'm sorry, Mr. Gerber, said, you waited so long, said, the only thing we can do for you is put a morphine pump around your neck, and when the pain gets so bad, he said, you can pump it yourself till you feel it go away. And I said, look. I don't want you putting no morphine pump around my neck. I said, because I can deal with it. And he said, you'd never be able to deal with that pain without having that. And he said, what you going to do? I said, I'll just use ice. I said, I'll use some ice. And he said, you'd never do it. So I said, well, how much time you, how much time you think I got? He said, look, then I'm beyond 30 to 60 days. So that's all I can see for you. And I started laughing. And he said, you're the first person I ever seen that I told they were dying. And start uh, laughing. And so the other doctor said, I said, because I don't believe you. And so the other doctor said that, well, Mr. Perry, he said, I really like your attitude. And he said, I will do whatever you want me to do. I said, do what you have to do. And he said, okay. So anyway, I had I had four surgeries in seven weeks. And then I um, had for eight or nine months of chemo. It was tough, but. I look at that. I did it. I did it. I got through. So that's what I said. And a lot of, a lot of it. I really believe 
is that um, the goodness that you do, God won't He won't forget you. He'll come to you when everybody else can't do nothing for you. Then He'll really show you what He really can do for you. And with that, I'm going to say thank you, Uncle Morgan. Yeah. Thank you for doing this interview with me. You're welcome. As with the 1969 Brookvale Baseball State Champions, the 1958 Julius Rosenwald High School Baseball Champions also did not receive recognition. Their achievements were not recorded with the Virginia High School League because we are talking about a segregated society. The VHSL is currently righting a wrong by working in conjunction with Virginia State University's Johnson Memorial Library's Collections and Archives Division, which houses records of the Virginia Intercollegiate Association. It has the records for black schools' achievements. The VIA's records are currently from 1954 through 1969. 1969 being the year schools integrated. The VHSL has records as far back as 1920. They formally recorded only records of the white schools. As mentioned, they are correcting that. Morgan Curry was and is a champion as were many other men and women of his era and beyond. Not all champions get the glory, but if we know about them, we can aspire to be just like them because sometimes glory is recognized, even while being black on the northern neck. The music by Robert A. Hall. This interview is dedicated to the black athlete, men and women that didn't get the chance to realize their potential, but played the game the only way they knew how, to win. Thank you for listening.